Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Would you uh, pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful uh, for the chance to come here and worship with you this morning. Lord, to dig into your word, to hear from you, to hear your words as you speak to us. I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, maybe some of you have been to the Epcot Center at Disney World. Maybe some of you recognize this. It's one of the, one of the oldest rides at Epcot is inside this enormous dome, and it's called Spaceship Earth. I don't know if any of you have been on it recently. So this is a ride that allows you to, and I quote, travel through time and explore the remarkable history of human communication from the Stone Age to the computer age. So it's the complete opposite of a roller coaster. If you haven't done it, it's the total opposite of a roller coaster. It's more like a, a museum exhibit that you kind of slowly work your way through. It's like instead of walking through a museum, you sit in this little vehicle type thing and it takes you through and there's a soundtrack and all this kind of stuff. This is sort of how I imagine what Moses is doing here in these opening chapters of Deuteronomy, chapters 1, 2, and 3, right? We get the full detailed history with all the everything and Exodus and Numbers, but here in Deuteronomy, Moses gives the people a highly compressed overview. It's like he says to them, come sit with me as we travel through time and explore the remarkable history of God's work among his people from the Exodus to today. Now, truth be told, that journey doesn't start here in chapter 2 and 3 that we're looking at today, but back in chapter 1, and that part of the story can be summarized very simply as follows. Everything is a total mess. That's chapter 1. That's your summary of chapter 1. Everything is a total and complete mess, right? First, the people disobey God's clear command to go in and enter the promised land. So what happens? God says, okay, none of you are going in except for Joshua and Caleb. Then God tells them, look, not only that, you now have to turn around and go back in the direction of the Red Sea. Now, the crossing of the Red Sea was the defining moment in the, in the history of the people of Israel, this, this high point. And to be sent back in that direction was a crushing, humiliating blow. So then what do the people do? They decide, aha, uh-huh, we're just going to go into the land anyway. Even after God tells them explicitly, don't do it. It's too late. It's like, like little kids, and they're, they, they've got, they're, they're in trouble, and they're, they're going to be punished, and they start scrambling. They're like, no, 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 I can fix that. I, uh, let, let me do it. I'll do that anyway. And God's like, no, it, it's too late. It's too late. But they go in anyway, and it's ridiculous what happens. They get completely destroyed. It's double disobedience, utterly defeated in battle, left in total and complete disarray. Like I said, everything is a total and complete mess. That's where we ended the uh, sermon last week, in a place of failure. But chapter 2 opens in kind of a different place. Something has, has shifted here. Not, not completely, not yet, but there's, there's a slight change. If, if you look at, at uh, the opening verses of chapter 2, 
He says, Then we turned and journeyed into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea, as the Lord told me. Now, as I said, they're still heading in the wrong direction, literally and symbolically. Like, literally, they're supposed to be going north, and now they're going south. Symbolically, they're, they're supposed to be moving away from slavery and death and into the promised land of freedom and rest, and now they're going in the wrong direction. And yet, at the same time, and I, I don't, maybe they're, they're humbled by this defeat, this chapter sees a change in the people. Because, after all, they are now doing what the Lord commands, even if they don't understand it. And here's what's so interesting to me for chapters 2 and 3, because the focus in these two chapters, it's really not on the punishment. Like, here's how God is going to punish you for your failure, for all that mess. Instead, the focus shifts here in these two chapters, and, it's, and it turns to the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, on God's provision, on his protection, on his work among all peoples, in all places. So if chapter 1 was about all the ways that we mess things up, then chapters 2 and 3, they become about all the ways in which God graciously works to fix our mess. It's the gospel. In a, in a miniature form here, right? Chapter 1, the bad news. Your sin bars you from entrance into the promised land. And no amount of effort and hard work can get you in under your own strengths. But chapters 2 and 3 present the good news. That while we were headed in the wrong direction, God, in His mercy, grabbed a hold of us and set us on the path that leads to life in his presence. That's what we're going to see this morning. So, like I said a moment ago, imagine with me you're on one of those Epcot-style rides slowly moving through the, this history, right, that, that Moses is giving and after wandering around in the wrong direction for some time, we learn that God finally commands the people to turn northwards. But this next phase of the journey takes them through three distinct nations or regions of the land. And in each case, the command will be the same from God. Don't touch what's not yours. That's what he says. Don't touch what's not yours. So first, they come to the land of Edom which is occupied by the descendants of Esau. And God's command is very specific here. He says, do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on. I imagine like a big uh, keep off the grass sign or don't walk on the grass. Like, I don't know if you have these over here. We have them. We're very particular about our lawns in England. And so... They're not for walking on. You look at them from a distance, admire them. But this was sort of what I imagine God saying, like, keep off the grass. Don't go in there. But why? Why are they told, don't mess with the Edomites? 
Well, first, I think it's is a, a lesson in obedience, right? Like a parent teaching a child. Look, when I say no, I mean no. Don't do it. And so in some sense, this entire 38-year detour through the desert becomes an opportunity, not just for the rebellious generation to die off, but also for the next generation to now learn what it means to walk with God in obedience, to trust him and to obey him. Now, secondly, they're to keep out because the Edomites were distant relatives. Israel, after all, is Esau's younger brother. And so these people, they're still family, even if they are not, strictly speaking, God's chosen people. But there's a third reason here. Look at the text again in verse 5. God says, I will not give you any of their land because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. I have given them this land as a possession. You see, the issue here is not, not kinship. It's about lordship. Esau's land was given to him by God himself. Now, of course, we're used to thinking of the promised land as being God's special gift to Israel, but it's not like God's power uh, uh, begins and ends at the River Jordan, like, well, I have control over this land and who has it, but, but everything else is kind of up for grabs. All land everywhere belongs to God. All of it is his to distribute and partition as he sees fit. And even if the blessing that was passed down through Jacob instead of Esau, God, in his grace, nevertheless still gave a specific portion of land to Esau to occupy. So the people, they they, they keep making their way north. And the next stop is Moab. And again, God's command, very specific. Do not harass Moab or contend with them in battle. For I will not give you any of their land for possession. So God, God says, look, I want to be really clear here. This land, it's also not yours, so stay out. Now Moab, like Edom, was also related to Israel, right? Abraham's nephew Lot had two children, Moab and Ammon. And so again, there's some degree of deference towards family. But more specifically, God's command is connected to his authority over all lands, all peoples, all places. So at the end of the verse, we see, again, the same language. Don't go into the land of Moab because I have given it to the people of, uh, uh, given the R to the people of Lot for possession. God never established a covenant with Moab, but he did give them land as a possession nonetheless. They didn't sort of steal it, God gave it to them. It's pretty remarkable, again, because we're, we're used to thinking the promised land is this, this special place that, 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 that is unique in, in history, the, God giving land to a people. And yet here we have this really clear language demonstrating God's plans not just for Israel, but for Moab as well. But there's more, because the next Uh, verses highlight the extent of God's reign over all people. Now, I'm not going to read it. It's a whole lot of detail about the Yamim and the Anakim and the the Rephaim and the Horites. 
And the point here is that God has been at work behind the scenes, moving peoples, giving land, taking away land, raising up kings, tearing down others. But as Moses continues his journey back through the recent history, there's one more nation ahead, Ammon. And for a third time, God says, do not harass them or contend with them. Why? Because I'm the one who's given the land to them as a possession. You're seeing a pattern here? Three times in a row, we have almost the exact same wording. It's like God saying, see this land? Do you see this land? Good. It's not yours. Don't touch it. It's theirs. And do you want to know who gave it to them? I did. Now, in some ways, there's this journey through these three lands and this repeated command from God over and over again. It, it becomes a, a reflection of the command not to covet. Right? I mean, coveting is just a fancy way of saying, look, I want what you have. And wrapped up in that sentiment is a belief that God has not actually provided me with everything that I need. Coveting is a sign that we don't actually trust God. Remember, this whole section is about learning to trust God. Coveting is the belief that we don't think God really has our best interests at heart. Coveting says, I know what's best for me, and it involves whatever, fill in a blank. It involves being in a relationship with that person or driving that car or owning that house or, or, or working that job or living in that place. But what is the antidote then for this coveting? Well, if you look at verse 7 in, in chapter 2, Moses says this, For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you're going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you. You have lacked nothing. Now, this part of me, when I read that, I go, really? They really lacked nothing? I mean, for sure, they had no sunscreen, right? And uh, they certainly lacked all the sweet REI camping gear I would have wanted on such a journey, they didn't have any ice, no cold drinks. But Moses doesn't say, look, God gave you everything your heart could possibly dream of or imagine. He says this, you had the Lord with you. And if the author of life is walking with you, what else could you possibly need? But that's the challenge, right, for all of us. Do you really see God's hand at work in your life, guiding, leading, providing, blessing? Do you see that he really is with you, that you lack nothing? Or do you only see the hard ground in front of you and the hot sun baking overhead? Is your focus then on, on what you don't have, what you wish you had, or on the blessings and the provision guaranteed for you in Christ? You know, I've noticed that the, the older you get, Sometimes the clearer this becomes, right? Because once beauty and strength and power and wealth and possessions and independence even start to be stripped away, then those are the happiest who can look back at the end of their lives and say, along with Moses, 
These many years of my life, the Lord has truly been with me. I've seen loved ones grow sick and die. I've experienced my share of heartache, struggle, and loss. But through it all, I have truly lacked nothing. But you don't have to wait around until you're 80 to experience that. Like it's all different ways for us to end up at that destination. For example, even simple things like, like every time you give generously, you have a chance to let go of the things of this world, to, to tangibly, practically display trust in God to provide for all your needs. Likewise, when you serve others, you learn the path of humility. When you practice dying to self day after day, you learn how to set aside your own needs and in the process how to trust God to provide everything you truly need. You lack nothing in Christ as you walk with your heavenly Father. Well, as we... uh, Hop back now on our imaginary Epcot ride. We're charting a journey through Israel's exodus. The next stop becomes remarkably more dramatic because after telling the people, don't attack Edom and don't attack Moab and don't attack Ammon, God now tells him, you can and indeed you should attack the people, uh, uh, Sihon, the Amorite. Right? He says, rise up. Set out on your journey. Behold, I've given into your hands Sihon the Amorite. Take possession. Contend with him in battle. Right now, things are starting to get really interesting. Attacking Sihon is God's plan, God's command, God's clear will for his people. And, and unlike the situation in Kadesh, now the people are finally in a place of obedience and trust and faithfulness where they can execute God's commands. And so our second lesson from today's text is this. Don't fear what lies ahead. Don't fear what lies ahead. Now, even saying that out loud makes me me pause. I mean, there is a, a, a war, a massive war taking place right now. Russia invading Ukraine, right? People are dying. There is all kinds of things to fear over there. Uh, all kinds of violence and strife here in our own country. Just yesterday, people shot while shopping for groceries. It's evil. It's sick. The Israelites, they knew plenty about fear, right? Fear of the Egyptian slave masters, fear of Pharaoh, fear of being trapped by the Red Sea, fear of starvation, fear of dying from lack of water, fear of surrounding nations who might and did attack them, right? Fear uh, of the people who already lived in the promised land. Remember Pastor Michael's uh, giant from last week, 13 feet tall. That's not unreasonable to fear somebody that size. So although they were no doubt chastened by the experience at Kadesh where they had failed to go into the land, there was still probably some uncertainty about uh, what was going to happen next. And that's where these battles with first with King Sihon and then with King Og enter into the picture. 
So Sihon, he's this aggressive king. He's hard-hearted towards the Israelites, eager to engage them in war. But as we read in verse 33, the Lord our God gave all into our hand. Despite, despite all his bluster and aggressiveness, Sihon was no match for God. Now, it's not so much that the Israelites were like these incredibly gifted fighters and, and super powerful warriors. In fact, it would ha- kind of hard for me to imagine how they could be since the previous generation of, of soldiers had all died off and they'd just been wandering around in the desert for all this time. But this battle was won by God, right? As Moses says, the Lord is the one who gave all into our hand. And you can see a pattern developing here that's going to continue through the Bible and down into the New Testament church, even to today, a model of divine sovereignty that requires both our action and also God's sovereign purposes, where we work and God works, right? The Lord gave King Sihon into their hands. The result was therefore a foregone conclusion, but they still had to pick up actual swords and fight an actual battle. Now, our context is totally different, of course, but the process remains the same. As Paul puts it in Colossians uh, 1.29, right? We toil, we work, we struggle, but we do that with all, with all his energy, God's energy, that he is working powerfully within us. So what does that look like? It means even if God has decided that something is part of his plan, we may still have to work to bring it about, So it means not simply praying for someone to come to faith in Christ, but opening our mouths and sharing the gospel with them. It means uh, not simply praying for success on some big project that I'm working on, but actually putting in the hours and hours of hard work to make it happen. The prayer and the reliance on work doesn't free uh, uh, on God. The prayer and the reliance on God doesn't free us up from doing the work. And our hard efforts don't mean that God isn't sovereignly at work behind the scenes working out his plans. The the two go together. But getting back to our story here, after defeating Sihon, the people, they they move up into this region here, occupied by King Og. That's this section right here, roughly. Oh, sorry, this section right here. From the Jabbok down to the Arnon. Uh, so that's the region of King Sihon. And then they move up to the uh, region occupied by King Ak. And he has all this land, the uh, Bashan and Gilead, enormous territory. And again, defeated almost without any incident. Moses reports it as if it was really not a big deal at all. Right? He says, So the Lord our God gave King Og also uh, the king of Bashan and all his people, and we struck him down until there were no survivors. Just like, yeah, I am. By the way, we took all this land too. But this was a huge deal. Remember, King Og, uh, we read here in, in verse 11 
a giant of a man. His bed is literally like 13 feet long. Right? That's quite some bed. And one of the last remaining giants in this area. And the people, therefore, are clearly learning and growing their obedience and trust of God, ready to step out into battle. And this takes us to the main point of this entire section. If you look at verse 21, Moses says, And I commanded Joshua at that time, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are now crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Now certainly the, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and, and the half tribe of Manasseh, they received some, some really choice land east of the Jordan as a result of these victories. But that wasn't really the main point, the main reason that God gave these kings into their hands. These kings were defeated so that the people would not live in fear of what lay ahead. He says these past victories were to provide them with the confident assurance they needed to press on into a potentially scary future. Well, that's great for the Israelites, but what about for us? Right? I, I, if the New Testament, Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples, don't fear. Because after all, not even a, a sparrow falls from the sky without God commanding it. And we're worth far more than a mere sparrow, right? He says, so don't fear, which is great, except part of me wants to say, but can we have the option where the sparrow doesn't die at all? Like, like that's the one I want. And sometimes I look back and I don't see a lot of big, giant victories over huge kingdoms that I can stake my future confidence on. But we have to remember, this isn't about your victories or my victories or your power or my power. It's about God's, right? So, so my confidence is not rooted in the things of this world that vary wildly day to day. Because if it did, I would be kind of in a hopeless position. Because for every good thing that seems to happen, it's something I can just as easily find something bad to sort of balance it out. And then I'm stuck with this list of pros and cons or goods and bads in my life. And I know many people who are trapped in a cycle where they can only see suffering and struggle. And as such, have begun to question God's care for them. But the victory that we're supposed to look back on the victory that is supposed to give us true lasting confidence in the future is actually Christ's victory over sin and death. Because in the end, that's the only victory that really matters. So Moses told Joshua, don't fear. And Joshua told the people, don't fear. And Jesus said, don't live in fear. I don't know what lies ahead, but I do know who is walking with me through it all. And in the end, that's all that really matters. We have uh, 
just about have time here for one last brief lesson from these chapters, and it's this. Look beyond the finish line. So after recounting the defeat of King Sihon and King Og and the subsequent division of the land, Moses' sort of imaginary Epcot-style ride ends and the lights come on and the people get off. And we're back in the present day. The, the, the recap of our recent history is over and they're back now on the plains of Moab just across the River Jordan from Jericho. Their journey is almost over. It's so close, right? The finish line is in sight. But there's a problem still because Moses knows he cannot finish this race. And so he talks to God. There's this heartfelt prayer of Moses. And he says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time saying, Oh, Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness, and your mighty hand for what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such mighty acts as yours. Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and the Lebanon. It's like it's heartbreaking. It's like Moses is pleading, Lord, please let me go in. After everything they've gone through, everything he's experienced, all the highs, all the lows, they're so close. It's like running a marathon and you get all the way to mile 26 and you're forced to withdraw with like 0.2 of a mile left to go. And the people are all out there. You can, you can see the ribbon, you know, marking the finish line and the crowds and the cheering and everything. And instead, you're not allowed to finish. And listen to his prayer. Moses says, you have only begun. You've only begun to show all your greatness and your mighty hand. Think about everything. Everything. All the mighty acts of God that they've seen so far. But Moses knew that was just the beginning. But despite his pleadings, God refuses the request. He refuses them. He says, no. It's a powerful reminder that walking with God does not exempt us from the consequences of our sin. Now, our inheritance is secure in Christ, but it may turn out to be a rocky and perhaps even disappointing road to get there. Suffering, struggle, even defeat may still be in your future. Ultimate victory doesn't always translate into literal victories here and now. So you may get passed over for that promotion, even though you prayed really hard for it. The deal you were hoping would go through may in fact fall apart, even when it seemed like the perfect opportunity but none of that means that you've been abandoned or ignored or overlooked. Like Moses, you may only ever see the promises and hopes and dreams from a great distance. You may never taste them for yourself, but God has promised a richer, deeper, fuller inheritance in heaven than anything you can experience in this world. 
And I think in part that's the intent behind God's final words to Moses in this chapter. Because God does two things. First, he says, okay, Moses, you can go up on the mountain and you can see the land from a distance. Not just to sort of look at it like a, like a tourist might look at something through a telescope. But to truly like gaze on it. To enjoy this moment of, of peace after 40 years of wandering in the desert. A moment to, to revel in the, the, the length and breadth and height and width of, of this land that God has given to his people. A chance to see that crossing the Jordan will be just the beginning of something truly amazing. So first, God gives Moses a taste of what's to come. But then second, God reminds Moses again that Joshua is the one who will take the people into the land. And Joshua needs all the encouragement and strength and help that Moses can give him. So this becomes a moment where he says, Moses, you need to step out of yourself here. You need to take your eyes off your own grief and instead give focused attention to preparing your successor. And so my final encouragement for you today is to look beyond the finish line. To look beyond the finish line. To look out ahead into the future beyond whatever short-term goals and dreams you have. To cast your vision so much further ahead. To the next generation of leaders who will walk in places that you will never go who will build and create all kinds of businesses and institutions greater than anything you can imagine. People who will grow families that go out into all the world, expanding their reach beyond any work you can envision, touching the lives of people you don't even know and will never meet. Beyond that, I encourage you to find strength in the Bible's vision of of a place of rest far beyond the horizon. Past your own death in the great and glorious day when Christ will return and usher in the new heavens and the new earth and make everything new. A time when whatever suffering you've experienced here will be little more than a faint memory, a fleeting moment that is overwhelmed by the dazzling presence of God himself dwelling among his people. A promised land that all believers will inherit and experience and live in forever. An inheritance that can never be taken away, that that we will never fall short of attaining. In and through and because of the loving, gracious sacrifice of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And until that day, may we continue to press ahead in confident assurance of his presence always to the end of the age. Amen. Lord, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who enables us to do what what Moses could never do, Lord. Your son who brings us into the promised land of, of rest in your presence. Lord, when we were wandering in the wrong direction, Trapped by our sins, Lord, you set us on the right path. Lord, I pray this week you would help us to walk with you, 
confidently, boldly, fearing nothing, trusting in you to provide for all our needs. In Jesus' name, amen.